We are in a classic Palm Sunday text, uh, Luke 19, uh, 28 to 44. Uh, we're just calling this sermon the entrance of the king. Um, a couple of things uh, before we read through the passage, and, and that is um, we, we are jumping into the book of Luke, and we're actually going to be in Luke for a little while. Uh, all of our Easter uh, passages are going to be from the book of Luke, and even beyond Easter, we're going to look at some of the resurrection stories. So here we are in a, a gospel, uh, Luke recording all the events uh, leading up to the resurrection, uh, the crucifixion, resurrection. Uh, by this point in the ministry of Jesus, here in uh, chapter 19, uh, it's, it's of course near the end the end of his, his, his life before his crucifixion and then resurrection. Uh, they've been together, he and the rest of the disciples, for about three years. Uh, Jesus is about 30-ish, 33 years old. And um, if we were to measure the success of his ministry in terms of sort of some of the earthly metrics, we would say that um, things have gone pretty well. There, there's been numerical growth in terms of the ministry of Jesus. More and more people are coming to hear about him, hear him speak. There's been spiritual growth. People are getting a better understanding of the kingdom of God. They're, they're more interested in this whole idea of, of repentance. They're confused by a lot of things, but they still want to follow him. Uh, it's a very exciting time. Uh, you might say that uh, at this point, Jesus has a lot of cultural capital, right? He's, he's very popular. He's got a lot of influence, and the question kind of leading up to our event of, uh, of our text this morning is what is Jesus going to do with all of this influence and popularity that he, ha- he now has? I mean, there's some options before him. Uh, he could start a rabbinical school, right? He's a rabbi, he's a teacher. That would have been a very prestigious thing. He could have gathered more and more disciples and, and sort of taught certain ways. He could start a revolution. That's what a lot of people hoped for that he would assume his kingship now and overthrow the Romans. People were wondering, what, what is he going to do? And what we find in our text this morning is, is typical of Jesus, in that he, he exceeds the expectations of the crowd, but also he frustrates them. So we're going to see him exceeding them because he comes as, a, as kind of a victorious king, riding on a donkey, which was very significant for them. But he's going to frustrate them because as he sees Jerusalem, he, he breaks down and he cries. And, and so there's this tension that we see here in the text. And so with that in mind, with, with the idea that we are actually going to find out even more about what it means for Jesus to be king, uh, let's turn to the word of God and see what he has for us this morning. Uh, as I said, uh, beginning in uh, verse 28, I'm going to read uh, through the text and then we're, gonna, we're just going to unpack it. So uh, here we are, the triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead Going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, 
If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. As always, Lord, thank you that in it we... We know more of you. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we uh, give our attention to this text, to this event in the life of Christ, uh, God, I pray that we would would come to worship you more, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us on this Palm Sunday to to have a renewed uh, enthusiasm for your kingship, for us to understand you more. And for those of us here, Lord, who who don't don't yet know you as Savior and Lord, those who are just checking things out, God, I'm so glad they're here. And I pray that this would be a time where they too come to understand Jesus better. And Lord, that, uh, that our hearts would be so soft that we might be impacted by, by your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to work our way through the text uh, in two sections. Uh, we're going to look at two aspects of the, the kingship of Christ, what it means for him to be king. Uh, the first, we're going to see Jesus as the praiseworthy king. That's number one. And secondly, we're going to see Jesus the compassionate king. So his praiseworthiness and his, his compassion. Uh, but to begin, the praiseworthy king. Uh, one thing that becomes apparent as you read through the Gospels, like just the story of Jesus' life and ministry, is that there is this um, apparent tension between Jesus the Savior and Jesus the King. I say apparent because it, there isn't actually tension there. He is both Savior and King. But from the disciples' point of view, there's kind of this... This tension where they always get very, very excited about the prospect of him you know, becoming king, of him leading them, of some sort of a revolution, of, of him being the Messiah that was prophesied and when he would come and liberate them from the Romans. There, there's, the crowds get very, very excited when Jesus does things that they think, man, this is, this is the guy, this is the one. And Jesus always has to temper the enthusiasm of the crowd. So when people get really excited, he tends to make himself scarce. Right? They're getting, yeah, this is the guy, and they look, where did, where did he go? He, he's with his disciples, out on a boat by themselves again. He's off praying by himself again. Right? He's doing the exact opposite of what you would think if someone wanted to grow in popularity. Uh, campaign managers for political campaigns, they do the opposite of this. Right? Their goal is that their candidate uh, kind of grows in momentum. So from one speaking engagement to the next, there's, there's more people, there's a lot of buzz, they capitalize on that great event by, by going to the next one right away, they make sure everyone knows where he will be speaking, they, they try to build momentum, but Jesus, he, he doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus says things like, my hour has not yet come. I know you're excited, but, but just chill, it's not the time yet. Okay? He, he heals people, and then he says, don't tell anyone, don't, don't, don't tell people about this amazing thing. Right? He, he does miracles, and then he says, don't, don't mention this to anyone. It's not my time yet. In fact, there, there are times where he tells the disciples, uh, he forbids them from telling everyone about the fact that he is the Christ. It's finally revealed to them, and then he says, don't, don't tell anyone about this yet. He makes very, very clear to his core disciples especially that the road they are on is one that leads to Jerusalem, but not with a coronation. It, it's to the cross. He is going there, as savior. 
And in fact, just before chapter 19, just a, so a few days earlier from this event of today, uh, we, we see this. He, he again tells the disciples what's going to happen. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that, was, that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So it's kind of surprising, isn't it? That as they go to Jerusalem, Jesus enters with a lot of, lot of fanfare. That's interesting to me. If Jesus has been telling them, hey, just chill out, just, just relax, I'm here for something different. And if he tells them right before, he hears the plan, we're going to go there and listen, I'm going to be killed. That's not the first time he told them that. It's just that they never quite get it. They, they can't believe that this is actually the plan. And then Jesus does the very thing that would go in the other direction. He rides on a donkey, which to us does not seem very exciting. Not seem very kingly, right? It's a petting zoo, donkey. That, that's kind of fun for kids. But for the Jewish people, this would have been very exciting because a donkey had great spiritual significance. I mean, King David... The greatest king, he rode on a donkey. And, and the Old Testament prophets, they foretold of the Messiah that would come riding on a donkey. Here's Zechariah 9.9. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when Jesus stops outside of Jerusalem... And he says to the disciples, hey, go and find a colt. They would have been like, oh, yes, it's happening. Yes, they would have immediately forgotten the plan to go and be crucified, which didn't seem like a great plan to begin with anyway. This plan seems much better. He's, he's doing it. Go get the donkey. Of course, it happens as Jesus plans. The Lord needs it. They come, they put him on the donkey, and everyone gets very, very excited. And so the question again is, why did Jesus do this? Why did he encourage this idea of himself as king if it wasn't yet time for him to be king? And the answer, quite simply, is that Jesus is the king. It was the most natural thing in the world for everyone to praise him and worship him and for him to receive their praise. See, we have this idea, I think, that when it comes to kings and queens, most of the time, all the, all the devotion, all the worship, it's, it's kind of orchestrated. I mean, throughout history, certainly we know that there are many, many kings that the only reason people are bowing down is because they value their head. And so the king is coming, I'm, I'm going to bow, right? Amazing. Everywhere the king goes or the emperor goes, everyone's just, boy, they worship so much. And the, the truth is that it's not from their heart, it's because they're forced to. And we have this idea sometimes that, that people are, are always compelled to worship. In fact, I came across a story that really illustrates this well, just uh, an amazing story of, of a man named Jean Bedel Bocasa. He, uh, he was originally sort of a, the military leader of a, a country in, in Central Africa, the Central African Republic in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he got it into his head that he was going to rule over this area. And so he uh, led a, a coup, he ousted the president, and then he, he pro uh, proclaimed himself. He declared himself the emperor of the Central African Empire. And then he staged a coronation for himself that, that was filled with pomp and circumstance. His, his hero was Napoleon. And so he said, I'm going to have a coronation like that. He got a football stadium, soccer stadium, and filled it with people. And then he built for himself a throne. Here's a picture of it. This is him on the day of his coronation. 
That, that is real gold. That throne cost $2.5 million to fabricate. And, and the, the thing he's wearing has 700,000 pearls, real pearls. He has crystal beads, a million of them. He had a crown with a 138-carat diamond at the center to the cost of $2 million. He had a giant party afterward with everyone that was invited. He would fly in. They flew in all sorts of food. They had terrines of caviar that two chefs had to carry. He flew in 60 brand-new Mercedes-Benz limousines so that everyone could just drive there in style, all of his people. This whole thing cost $20 million for a country that could barely feed its people. In fact, he used the foreign aid money from the French to, to finance all of this. This was a stadium filled with people that did not want to be there. They did not care about this king. They had no desire to worship him, and yet they did because he was in charge. The, the foreign reporters that were there covering the event, they wrote about the, the, the hollowness of the whole thing. It, it, was a, it was a hollow, manufactured event, and it was a reflection of the selfish character of this king the one who was wearing this crown. See, he had stolen all of this authority and then he demanded that people would worship him. And with Jesus, it's the exact opposite. See, with Jesus, he rightfully holds all authority in his hand as a son of God. All majesty, all glory and honor. And, and he could, but we see a glimpse in our text, he could have entered the world like that, the rightful king, he could have come riding on a donkey or a horse or a dragon, whatever he wanted. He, he's the king of the universe. He could have come with all his power and majesty and glory and it would have been rightfully his, but he didn't. Philippians tells us what he did instead. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this is what Jesus, the true king, did with his power. He showed compassion and humility. And because of that, people constantly are, are drawn to him. Throughout his ministry, as he begins to reveal himself, even though they don't see his, his divinity and the, and the grandness of his kingship, they still can't help but be drawn to him because of his compassion, because of his authority. They're, they're, they're coming to him constantly and, and they're devoted to him. We see a beautiful picture of this in, uh, actually in a few different gospels, but here it is in Mark, where the woman comes to him while he's reclining at table, and she worships him. Uh, you see this, and while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. See, notice, even though it wasn't yet his time to be crowned king, he defends her worship. Why? Because it was the most natural thing in the world for her to worship him. It was right. It was fitting. And for him to receive that praise and worship. What we see throughout the Gospels and in our text this morning is that Jesus is the king. And Jesus is worthy of praise. He is the most praiseworthy king that has ever been. 
And so this dynamic that we see here is, is the same. Jesus enters as the king, as it says in Zechariah, because he is the king. Uh, the, what it says in, our, in the text there from the prophecy that he would be righteous, that he would have salvation, be humble, mounted on a donkey. He is all those things and so he fulfills prophecy. He gets the colt. He rides in. He, he reminds everyone, tells everyone that I am the king. I am the one who is worthy of praise. All the things that the people are shouting about him, they are true. I uh, hear from our text, verses 36 and 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is the one who did all those mighty works. They'd seen it. He's the one who healed people. He's the one who fed thousands. He's the one who did miracle upon miracle. And so they were, they were right to praise him. How could they not? He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the bringer of peace and the one who is deserving of all glory. He is the king. But in this praise, there's, there's, a, there's an insight here that I think is helpful for us. See, they said things that were true about Jesus. But there are many things in this world that are, that are true but not praiseworthy. There, there are things that, that we know are true but we don't feel the need to shout them or sing them or talk about them. Okay, as an example, um, the Canucks, at this point, we know are not, not very praiseworthy. Um, but there are some things that are true about the Canucks that you would, at, at any time, you would not shout them. Okay, just a few facts about the Canucks. For example, the Canucks, uh, they joined the NHL in 1970. Expansion team, uh, same year as the Buffalo Sabres. That, that's something that's true. I don't think we're really going to shout about that. It's just, oh, that, that's true. That's kind of interesting. Another interesting thing I found out in my vast research this week is uh, that the original owner of the team, uh, Tom Scalen, I think, uh, he was actually arrested for uh, stock fraud, and he spent the last two years of his ownership of the Canucks in prison. That's interesting. That's true. <laughs> Nothing really praiseworthy there. It's just kind of interesting, right? Another true thing is that the, the Canucks advanced to the Stanley Cup final just three times, uh, 1982, 1994, and 2011, as some of us uh, probably know. Maybe some of us were alive for all of those runs. And we would say that that is a true statement. And, but I'm starting to lean towards a time where I might have, might have been shouting. Because if you were there at some of those Stanley Cup runs, uh, you, you probably were very excited. I know I was. Uh, not someone who's a huge hockey fan, but in 1994, me and my friends, we were totally caught up in this series, especially with the Rangers. And, and this all reached a climax. I mean, you know what it's like in this town when there is a Stanley Cup run. People get very excited. People start to do things that are not very Canadian, like honk their horns and yell and shout and scream. We're very excited. We put signs up. And that was true for us. We were, we were watching all of the games. And, and game six was really the, man, it was the peak of excitement. I know, I know game seven didn't go well, but game six was great because game six is when the Rangers, they thought they had it all wrapped up. Right? It had gone uh, two for them, I think one for us, back and forth. They were in New York. Uh, the Rangers were very, very confident. They already had the route planned out for the cup. They were sure they were going to win, but the Canucks, we stole it back. Right? And, and so I remember being there in my friend's house, and we were, when we won, when they counted that goal that was not a goal, and then it went back the other way, and then we finally won, we, we could not sit down. There was something that was true, but also praiseworthy. We had to sing and shout about it. We didn't sing. We were shouting about it. 
we were excited, we got in our car, and we started to drive around the city. And we would just honk our horn, at stoplights we would get out, we'd run around the car, we'd high five strangers. We went downtown, because that's what you do as a Vancouver, you go downtown, we were jammed on Robson, you know, bumper to bumper, my friend was driving, but we would run through all the cars, we would hug strangers, it was so exciting, we couldn't sit still, right, that you, probably some of you were there. So what I'm saying is that the human beings have this heartfelt need for certain truths that we, we have to praise them. We have to tell people about them. There's something inherently praiseworthy in certain things that are true, things that are beautiful, things that are glorious, things that are, that are wonderful and heroic. We naturally speak about these things, tell people about these things. And there is no one more beautiful or more praiseworthy than Jesus. In fact, we see throughout scripture that, that God himself is, is worthy of praise for all the creatures of the world. We see this in Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is why when, when you're just walking by and you see a sunset, you, you kind of can't help but say, man that's, man, that's beautiful. Man, that's amazing. The snow line, right, yesterday above. I mean, the praiseworthy thing there was that the snow line was above us, but it was still, you're like, that was beautiful. Right? That's what creation does. I think that's what Jesus is saying in our text. When the Pharisees kind of push him and he says, look, if, if my disciples weren't praising me, the stones would cry out. What he's saying is there's something inherently praiseworthy in me and all of creation naturally praises me as king. Again, for, for those outside the church, if, if you're here, you don't usually gather with the church, this may be a question on your mind. You may feel that Sunday mornings are kind of orchestrated, that that it seems like God is telling his people, no, you have to come Sunday morning. You have to sing. You have to stand. And then you, you go home don't, you, next week, but you have to come back. There's sort of this obligation. But for those who really know Jesus, it, it's not an obligation. It's a privilege. There is something naturally that wells up in us where we want to sing and praise God for who he is, like a, like a Stanley Cup win or like the birth of a child. Or at a wedding, we, we celebrate. Why? Because there's something inherently praiseworthy about the event or the act or the person. And so what we find in our text is that Jesus is, is the praiseworthy king. And so it's natural and fitting that his disciples would recognize this and begin to praise him and that he would go with it. Not just because he's, he's powerful and majestic, but also because he's, he's compassionate. He's the king who loves his people. And, and we see his compassion in kind of the last part of our, our text where, where all of a sudden he kind of puts the brakes on and, and, and he begins to weep because he sees the city of Jerusalem and he recognizes that everyone there is not going to be singing his praises. They, they're going to reject him. They're going to crucify him. So this is the second thing we see here, that Jesus, he is the praiseworthy king, but he is also the compassionate king. Uh, here's the verse, verse 41 and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Uh, the, the road to Jerusalem is kind of up and down, right? So there's, he was going down the Mount of Olives. The, the city was obscured, but then he came up over the rise, and all of a sudden there was the city. And everyone's still praising and singing and cheering, and all of a sudden Jesus, he, he begins to weep. He's not just getting a few tears. He's, he's wailing. He's lamenting. And you can imagine the disciples were like, hey, oh, what? Jesus, what? Can't you just enjoy this for a little bit? Well, why, are you, why are you crying? What kind of a king cries when his people are so excited? And the answer is, it's a king who knows the dangers people are in. He can't continue to celebrate. 
He's brought to tears because he, he recognizes the plight of his people. See, Jesus realizes that there is so much more that could have been and should have been. That if the hearts of the people were right, they, they all would have been recognizing him as king. Um, this is what we see in, in verse 42. He says, kind of, of Jerusalem, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Uh, the reason he says, even you, like especially you, is because this is, this is Jerusalem. This is the city of David. This is where God's people have, have always come to find peace with God. That's what the temple is all about. God set it up so that people would, would come at regular intervals to come and make peace with God to deal with their sin. They would bring animals that would die on their behalf, thus atoning, substituting for the sin, that, the death that they deserve. There would be peace between them and God for a period of time. But, but it was never intended to be the final answer. The final answer was the coming Messiah who would somehow bring peace between God and man. And Jesus is saying, that, that, that's me, but you're missing it. You don't recognize me for, for who I am. He knows that when he enters the city, there, there's not gonna be any celebrations. They're only gonna reject him. But the thing to recognize is that he's, he's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for them because they are missing the opportunity for genuine and lasting peace with God. See, that's the reason that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's coming there not to condemn sinners, not, not to bring justice, but to bring salvation, to, to save the lost. And then Jesus, as a, as a compassionate warning, he gives a prophecy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. It's, it's a picture. He's saying, look, this is the end for all those who persist in sin. And so he describes it in verses 43 and 44. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in from every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. This actually, this happened in about 40 years time, in the year 70 AD, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome. And uh, we have it uh, very well documented. Uh, Josephus, who is a, a Roman Jewish historian at the time, this is his account of the event, one of his accounts. It says, uh, Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the towers which projected higher than the others to stand and that part of the wall which closed the city into the west. This was to be an encampment for the troops which would be left behind. And the towers were to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortifications Roman prowess had dominated. See, for Rome, the destruction of Jerusalem was all about their power. It was all about telling the world, hey, this is how strong we are. We can take down a city like this. But what Jesus is telling us is that from God's point of view, it was all about the destruction of those who were in sin. It was all about judgment upon the people of God for not recognizing the Savior, for persisting in their sin. We see this type of prophecy of judgment throughout Scripture. In fact, uh, verse 44 makes it really clear. Jesus says, all of this destruction is coming. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Meaning, all of the Old Testament prophets, they, they were foretelling about a Messiah that would come. One who would come to bring peace. The King, the Anointed One. The one who would be called uh, Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Prince of Peace. But when he arrived, most of the Jewish people, especially the Jewish leaders, they, they did not recognize him as such. 
And the reason for that is that they were completely wrapped up in their own affairs. They were blind to the truth and praiseworthiness of Christ because they were grabbing hold to things that they felt would bring them peace in joy in this life. Right? We see that in their response. If we go back to, uh, to the verse where the Pharisees are kind of pushing back, they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, the Pharisees had seen all the same mighty works. They had been there for the healings, for the, for the miracles, for all the things that, that the crowd, his disciples, they're praising Jesus for, but they have hard hearts. They're saying, Jesus, you sh- people should not be worshiping you. Jesus, they should not be calling you king. There is nothing praiseworthy in you, Jesus. In fact, this whole thing is, is wrong. You should rebuke your disciples, tell them to stop. So what is it? Why couldn't they see what everyone else saw? And the answer is that that sin had corrupted the value structure of their heart. They could not recognize that which is truly valuable and beautiful and true because they were wrapped up in their own deal. Because when they looked at Jesus, they saw someone that was threatening their peace, threatening their joy because they were the religious leaders. They had a good thing going on where they were the ones who would lead people to God. And when Jesus came, he was destabilizing the whole thing. And so they didn't have any joy in their hearts. There was nothing, nothing in them that would cause them to praise Jesus. In fact, they hated him. They wanted him killed. And this happens to us too. What we love dictates what we will worship, what we will celebrate. Uh, to take you back to 1994, there was a lot of celebrations on the night of game six here in Vancouver, but in New York, no one was celebrating. They, they hated the Canucks. Why? Because they got in the way of their greatest joy, or their not greatest joy, but a joy. Stanley Cup win. And so naturally, no one was excited. Everyone was angry. And we saw the flip of it, sadly, in game seven, when Vancouver lost. And then Vancouverites took to the street and rioted. What, what was going on there? Well, they, people were probably drunk for one thing, but they were also angry. Right? They wanted a win. I mean, that's a, that's a trivial example. That's hockey. We, we, we don't really care about that. We recognize. You you're just grow up in New York, you, you cheer for them. You grow up in Vancouver, you can cheer for whoever you want. But look, there are certain things that are bigger than that, that are grander than that. There are certain things that are not about personal choice. Certain things that, that demand, that are inherently praiseworthy. And if we can't see them as that, there's something going on in our hearts that makes us hard towards them. There's something else that we love rather than that thing. That's what's going on with the Pharisees. See, there are some amazingly beautiful things in the world that all humanity, when we see it truly, we will naturally praise. We'll naturally celebrate. I was reminded of this uh, this week. Uh, Don and I watched a movie called The Zookeeper's Wife. And it's uh, about this couple that uh, had this zoo in Warsaw, Poland. And uh, the thing of it is, as I was, you know, scrolling through Netflix, you can see the summaries. Eh, is this a good movie? You're trying to decide. Um, I looked at this movie and I thought to myself, I actually passed over it a few times because I thought, man, hasn't this movie already been made before? Like, haven't we seen a lot of stories, great stories of people who have saved those who were headed to concentration camps? And I just thought to myself, I just don't know if I want to, see another movie like that. But eventually we, we watched it. And by the end, I'm like in tears. I'm like, this is so amazing. I was just, it was an amazing story. And, and I thought to myself, of course they made this movie. Of course they're telling this story again. Why? Because it's a story of people putting themselves in peril for the sake of others. 
That there was a whole ghetto of Jewish people who were being sent to death and they did what they could. They, they put themselves in danger, their son in danger. They brought them into the zoo. They, they hid them there. They give them papers. Amazing story. They saved 300 people from death. Of course we're telling the story. Of course we're going to make movie after movie where there are acts of valor and heroism and sacrifice. Why? Because they, it's inherently praiseworthy. I want to hear those stories. When I, when I hear them, my heart melts. It, it's an amazing testimony to the compassion of humanity. And there are those things in our lives that are so worthy of praise that they, we naturally worship and praise them. And Jesus is at the top of that list. Jesus is the one who is deserving of all praise because of his power, but also because of his compassion. What we see in our text here is a king, the rightful king of the universe, who is riding in, fulfilling all prophecy, and then his heart breaking because he sees his subjects and, and they don't see the help that he's offering. And he wants so much for them, them to see that he's going to the cross on their behalf. It breaks his heart that there would be people who are looking for joy and hope and they're finding it in the wrong thing. They're missing him. And so the, the burst of praise is really a celebration of who he is. But the weeping is even more so a testimony to his character. And so my question for us as we reflect on this, is, is twofold. Number one, for those of us who, who don't yet know Jesus, who read a story like this and we think, just, I'm not sure that I would be there. I'm not sure that I, that I would stand up and praise Jesus as king and savior of my life. My question is, could it be that there is something else in your life? Something lesser? Something good maybe in this world, but that is that is preoccupying your mind and your heart and so that you aren't able to see the, the praiseworthiness of Jesus? Could it be that like the Pharisees, you're missing the thing that you are really needing because of the other things in your life? Things that you're worried about giving up. Things that following Jesus might mean that you have to leave behind. And my, my ask to you is, would you consider the claims of Christ, that the kingship, the value of Christ, that he is the one who not only created the world and you, but also came for your salvation. My second question is to those of us who know Jesus. My question is, are we worshiping him as king? Are we naturally excited for the things of God? This time of year, is there a, a building excitement in us? For it's a time when we get to celebrate the greatest truth that has ever been told, that we have a king who came to sacrifice himself on our behalf. See, we sometimes miss the excitement. We sometimes know Jesus, but we don't really know. And, and I promise, this is the last time we're going back to 1994. But see, 1994, when I was out there in the car, and I was running around, I was high-fiving people, like we were celebrating, we would come to intersections, and all of the cars, almost all the cars would be honking, right? We'd be so excited. But every now and again, I'd see a car, and there'd be people, they'd look at me like I was crazy. They'd be like, what is going on? What's happened to our city? And if you ask those people, hey, do you know who the Canucks are? They would say, well, of course I know, that our, our hockey team. And if I said to them, did you know that they're in the Stanley Cup final? They would say, yeah, of course I know. They're, I see signs everywhere. But the thing is, they didn't really know. They, they didn't really know because they weren't celebrating. If they knew what was going on, they would be celebrating. They would recognize the truth that this is the most exciting moment for us as Vancouverites, but they didn't really know. And sometimes that's us as Christians. Sometimes we know, but but we don't really know because we're not excited. 
We're not celebrating. And look, that doesn't mean you have to come and sing in your loudest voice. I mean, maybe it does. Maybe you should. But what it means is that you have this, this heartfelt desire in all of your life to make much of Christ. That, that you are genuinely excited and genuinely heartbroken for those around us who don't know this hope who are looking to other things in their lives, other things in the world, looking for peace and joy and hope that will not last. And so our hearts are broken, but also it compels us to say, man, do you know Jesus? When was the last time you were in church? What are you doing next Sunday? We want for people to know this truth, not just because it's true, but because it's worthy of praise, but because there's a reason to praise our king and there's life-saving truth in the message of the gospel. So here, on this, this past Palm Sunday, when they were, they were putting down palm leaves, they were putting coats out, they were praising Jesus. But more than that, we see where he was going. We see that he was headed to, to Jerusalem. And, and his heart was heavy for the people who would reject him. That even there, he would be praying on their behalf. So, as we lead into the week before Easter, my hope is that for those of us who know Christ, we would really know him that we would spend some time in the word. We would be going over the message of the story. We've heard lots before, but it's worth hearing again. And that if there are people in our lives that we know that, that they have a hope, there's some good things, they're good people, but they, they need the perfection of Christ. They, they need the answer of the gospel that we would be compelled to go and just invite, that we would be in prayer. And that next Sunday, Friday, and then Sunday, we would come with, with hearts of worship because our king is praiseworthy and our king is compassionate. And we have every reason to rejoice. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for, for these truths. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, you are the praiseworthy king. Thank you, Jesus, that, that for all of time, people have been praising you. And as we look to heaven, that's what we will be doing there. We will be singing and, and praising you for who you are and what you've done. And I pray, Jesus, that this would be a week where more and more people come to know you as Savior and Lord where the good things in our lives, we recognize them as good, but not perfect, not enough, that we see, Jesus, that you were the perfect sacrifice, that you came to make peace through your death on the cross. And I pray, Jesus, that you would give us as a, as a people, as a church, just a, a building excitement for the opportunity to praise you on Easter Sunday, to proclaim your resurrection, and to invite others in to hear the message of hope. And God, I pray that in all of that, there would be much glory for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.